As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think you're full of I think I'm full of Shit, I was so full of Yeah, I was so full of I think I'm full of I think you're full of I think you're full of Shit Hello everyone and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host Mark Bigney, a man whose mother still says people I went to high school with that I have a blog. And with me is Michael Walker, whose mother tells him to get better taste in friends. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing all right. I will just merely note that between the two of our mothers, one of them is right and one of them is wrong. So this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year in the Aurus, the as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to have our feature topic this week, which is resolving rules disputes. I brought my knife to that gunfight. So Walker, what did we review last year? Exactly one year ago, we reviewed a game called Clinic Deluxe. This was a game about running a hospital and ushering in patients and spitting them out into the overfilled parking lots. Yes, ushering them in was important because you needed to usher them in so they could get gradually sicker in your hospital. So that you could charge well, you could more, more money that them. way. Yes. Exactly, yes. It's the route to profit. That and parking lots. This is how it captured today's medicine very well. Oof. There was that expansion that they crowdfunded very, very quickly since its release. Namely, the COVID expansion, which as I understand you acquired. Yeah, I got it. And there's been another uh, Kickstarter after that as well that is shipping as we speak. And Clinic Deluxe did survive the culling, but I have not got it back to the table yet, but it is on the shelf, like I do I the Calyx cube of games that will be back to the table soon. It is now in that cubicle, so we should be hearing about it in the next few weeks. So disciplined and regimented you are. Yeah, Albal Villar, the designer of Clinic Deluxe Edition, as well as Small City, 
is very much in the Euro design space that isn't really for me. Like, I'm, I'm, if you want to put two poles of heavy Euros, where on one end you have Splatter, which is to say relatively simple rules, lots of player interaction, lots of emergent gameplay. And the other end of the spectrum, and this is perhaps a bit unfair, you might have someone like the Talaserta, where I feel that the rules grit to play to decision space isn't quite worth it. I would definitely personally put Albavia closer to the Lacerda end of things. But some people are really down with that, and I, I, he, I definitely would play Clinic Deluxe Edition far, far sooner than I would a lot of other similarly weighted Euros. So there's that to be said for it, at least. I enjoyed the theme. The The parking of the cars seemed a bit silly and overly complicated, but but when you think about going to a hospital, you can see that it is a problem, at least here in Canada. I'm not sure how it is in other in other places of the world, but... Well, I can't tell if this is, number one, a pure abstraction to satisfy a fundamentally theme-light euro, number two, an accurate reflection of how healthcare is done in France, or number three, kind of like in a Paul Verhoeven move, his implied criticism of how he thinks healthcare is administered in North America. I don't know. It could be any one of the... It could be any combination of those things. At any rate, last year we reviewed Clinic Deluxe Edition. So, Walker, what'd you play last week? Mark, I finally received my game of Tinner's Trail, designed by Martin Wallace and put out by Alley Cat Games. This is sort of a reprint of Tinner's Trail. It was out a while ago, but they sort of spruced it up and tweaked it up. And at first, I was a little worried about it because there's a, another game called it is called City of the Big Shoulders. It's another sort of railway game. That is very mathy, right? And where you can, at the beginning of your turn, you sort of, you know, you can math out what chit you're going to take and the stock market and work out, you know, the best thing to take for the money. You know what I mean? If And if that's your thing, then then all power to it. And I was worried that Tinner's Trail is going to fall into that because you have these tokens. They're going to produce so much ore and the ore is worth so much uh, money this turn and you're going to convert this money into victory points. So I thought it was going to be just this constant math evaluation, but it didn't turn out to be that bad because there's only two types of resources and it's obvious which, which ones are going to be worth something that turn. There is a, what they call a volatile market. You're going to roll the value of your copper and your turn every turn. And it's very interesting because it's, it's I guess they say it's historical. I'm going to base that on that. They said it is in the book. So <laughs> That uh, copper was very fluctuant all over the marketplace where tin was very stable. So you could either invest your money into tin or your extraction efforts into tin or into copper and and gamble on it. And has this great flooding system that I guess was a big problem back then as well where the mines would fill with water. And this is one of the – was the main reason the steam engine was invented and – all iterations of the steam engine after that had to be tweaked slightly as to not infringe on the copyright of the steam engine pump and all sorts of stuff. Great little game. Lots of, there has this very unique bidding system where you can, you're going to be playing cards either before the bid or after the bid. If you place it before, you can look at the tile if it was face down. So you get some hidden information and it also gives you insurance that even if you, even though you started the bid and played a card on the bid, if you lose the bid, then you're going to get half of the money that it eventually made rounded up back to you. So that's very interesting. And the fact that you can sort of bluff a little bit because, you know, the tiles are worth certain months. So you can sort of let on that a tile is worth more than it actually is and thereby make 
player A pay more than he should and B give you money back at the same time. A sounds like a chump. Uh, well, it worked, so it's uh, it worked out great. I had, I had a lot of money. Um, <laughs> and uh, overall, I'd, I'd like to play this game again. Great components. It had this very interesting system as well where you have this development track where you take these pieces off the board and it makes your minds better. You know, just your mine alone, you can extract two cubes of minerals off and then you can put a railroad on it and a boat and an aqueduct or these things. There's a little little uh, mix up with the rules. We're going to talk about that later, <laughs> which is very interesting, the fact that it came up. But anyway, Tinner's Trail, great little game, four rounds, manipulating the market, selling goods, trying to find the best deposits of ore. I'm sure we'll hear about it again. I'm often a fan of Wallace's lighter games, so I'd be interested in giving that a try sometime. On the topic of both mining and auctions, I got to play a game called Merchants of Amsterdam. This is a game that I've been wanting to play for about 20 years, because it was published by Reiner Knizia in the year 2000, and I saw it very shortly after publication being played locally, but I never got a chance to play it at the time. And so I tracked down a copy here. Merchants of Amsterdam is... So incredibly stereotypically Euro in terms of the cover. It just shows a whole bunch of very frowny Amsterdam-type dudes wearing their little doilies. But they're playing the game, at least. So there's that little bit of... of oh, so they're not seductively looking into the camera? like it, With the come-hither lies? No, yeah, no, not yeah, exactly. that. Oh, that's they're very engrossed in playing Merchants of Amsterdam. The reason why it's related to mining is because in Merchants of Amsterdam, you only do Dutch auctions. It's auctions all the time, auctions all the way down. Dutch auctions are when you start with a high price, the price gradually lowers, and then someone pulls the trigger, as it were, and volunteers to, to pay that much. It was originally called in England mining, as in literally mining, because the auctioneer would start with a high number, keep going down until eventually someone would shout, mine! I'm not making this up. It is also known as an open outcry descending price auction, which I think is a charming term. Anyway, this is implemented in Merchants of Amsterdam in the best possible way through a plastic doohickey gimmick. You set a dial and you hit the, hit a button and literally it just starts counting down with an arrow pointed to the price. And then when someone wants to buy something, they slap the, the, the plunger and that stops the timer and that's how much they play. Okay, that's amazing. I know, it is amazing. It's, of course, entirely mechanical, so it's super loud, but I thoroughly enjoyed the gimmick nonetheless. And just having a bunch of people around the table staring at the dial, sometimes making little fake outs indicating kind of like jungle speed style that you're going to hit the button even though you're not, that part was lovely. However, I will say this. Merchants of Amsterdam is probably about 20 to 25 minutes too long. It's a lot of game, and it's only auctions. You're basically, I could go into the scoring, but the scoring isn't particularly interesting in and of itself. It's all area majority scoring in a variety of different ways. The only interesting bit of the scoring is that the different regions that you'll be scoring, the payouts are a function of how many people are in there. So there is a bit of an incentive to really go into a region hardcore and start putting in more influence after your initial one, because you might be jockeying to make that region more valuable than other ones later on. So that part was was interesting in and of itself. But as I say, uh, it's a Reiner Knizia auction game that is exclusively auctions and, and probably too long. The gimmick is nice, but it's overall reminiscent of Medici. The card play is very similar to Medici, the way that you use money to bid on the things that will then give you money at the end of the game is also very reminiscent of Medici. And I'd probably rather play Medici as the upshot. It's much quicker, much more cutthroat, and actually a little less rules-heavy as well. There are a number of, of thorny little bits of rules in Merchants of Amsterdam, despite the fact that it's a relatively light game. I loved the gimmick. I thoroughly enjoyed playing it. 
and I'd happily play it again, but quite frankly, given that there are three or four or five or six or maybe seven or eight other brilliant Knizia auction games that are competing for attention that are in point of fact simpler and faster, I would probably play those in preference. But I'm very pleased to have finally tried it. I was going to say, this timer thing sounds though could lead into this cheating thing that we were talking about earlier where you're hand faking on the timer because the lower it goes, the less you pay, right? Correct. So you could like hand fake it and then say, oh my God, what's that? And then they all look <laughs> over and then when they look back, say, and all this time you're paying less for your... Yeah, I love it. And then clearly you take that person outside for yes. a little chat. Uh, something along those lines, although we don't condone violence here at So Very Wrong About Games. So that was Merchants of Amsterdam. I said, I said a chat, Mark. That was Merchants of Amsterdam. <laughs> when merchants aren't in Amsterdam, Mark, where do you think they are? They could be on Venus. They're in a they're in a cove, Mark. Merchants Cove. Oh, that's where this they are. is the return to Merchants Cove. Because I picked up, you know, the Dragon Tamer expansion. And you gotta play it as the Dragon Tamer. So in Merchants Cove, you have all these adventurers streaming into your little into your little village, and you are manufacturing weapons and supplies for them. And depending on the types of adventurers come in, that that's going to uh, tell you the supply of what type of items that you should be manufacturing. And everyone has a different way to do it, different engines. Some one's manipulating dice as the blacksmith. I am shoveling up dragon poop and feeding dragons and creating dragons. Another person was creating potions by having this interesting, you know, drop-down marble system via potion explosion type thing. And all sorts, and there's several different other time travelers and oracles and barkeeps and all sorts of other ways you can make these goods. I think all around they did a great job seeing as they had all these, you know, unique ideas. It was another one of these. I'm spending actions of going around this, you know, the dial type thing. Same thing. This That was the same mechanism that was used in Tinner's Trail as well. You do certain actions and move move you along a track. And whoever's, you know, at the back moves next. I should have mentioned that because that was a very interesting thing in Tinner's Trail as well. When it was your turn, you could initiate an auction. And, and you didn't actually pay for that time. It's whoever won the auction would pay for that time. Oh. So it was a very interesting way to manipulate the timing. Like if you wanted some extra turns and you wanted that other person you let them win so they go even further along the track and you could take a bunch of actions without them doing anything and you could also you know force the price up and make everyone spend all their money on selling you know stuff and then you could just pick up a bunch of tiles for almost nothing because they had nothing to bid anyway back to merchant's cove great game i even ordered some more expansions so i could try out some more of the different you know ways to play people enjoyed it so Maybe it'll make it back to the table a couple more times. Merchant's Cove, designed by Johnny Pack, Carl Von Ostrin, Drake Van Riel, and published by Final Frontier Games. I heard a few minutes ago, Walker, someone, no doubt, someone with very low IQ, talking about Reiner Knizia auction games. And I got to play Raw. Played a couple games of Raw. It was requested specifically by Louis. And when, as you well know, when someone requests a game, I'm more than happy to oblige, especially when it's something like Raw. If Louis would request to play something bad, I would play something bad with him. Because generally speaking, we subject our friends to all kinds of games. And when they show an interest, I'm more than happy to accommodate. But when someone says, hey, Mark, why don't you play your favorite auction game by your favorite designer? I'll be like, sure. Twist my arm, why don't you? Played two games of Raw back to back. Great times were had by all. Playing chicken with the chicken, taking those huge risks, watching them blow up in your face, letting the tiles speak to you. You have to be a tile whisperer, Walker. You can't go into a game of Raw having a notion of what's going to happen. You do. 
you put your ear to the bag, Mark. The, the tiles will tell you. It's, it's that's the problem people have with that game. They just they they think they're playing their own game. They don't listen to the tiles. It's they true. don't feel the tiles. It's Mark. true. That's the problem. Few games manipulate tempo as nicely as Raw does. You have to know when to go in big. You have to know when to make suboptimal bids. You have to know when to play for more time. You know when to delay. Absolutely wonderful. Something strange happened in my second game, though. Something I'd never seen happen before. And it encouraged me effectively to try a new strategy. In Epic 1, I ended up with something like eight Nile tiles. I've never had that happen to me before. And so every Epic, it was then just a question of, can you find the floods? Because for those of you familiar with with Ra, you never lose your Nile tiles, but they only score if you get a flood. And the floods just kept coming out. I got a flood in the first epic and i'm like okay everything's fine but then the floods kept coming and i was worried that there weren't gonna be enough for the later epics i was very concerned fortunately i was able to nab some gods use the god tiles to snatch up the last floods anyway raw is a brilliant game i've sung its praises all the time and yet never often enough that was raw by reiner kinsia i got to play a game called isle of cats designed by frank west and published by the city of games this is a game that got a lot of buzz a couple years ago and i had never got a chance to try it it's a tetromedo game where uh, there's an evil villain and he's going to blow up this island, but there's a bunch of cats on the island. Mark. Really? So That's the save... theme of the game. This is the theme of the game. That's amazing. And so we have to we have to save these cats. So we're trying to crowd them all onto these boats. So you're you're drafting these cards. You're playing out cards that will give you more baskets and or victory conditions and or treasure tiles and trying to fill the boats there's different rooms on your boat so you're going to get negative points for the rooms that are completely filled and bunny kingdom style you're going to have all these secret objectives face down some will be face up that's an ominous warning as to your impression of the game i uh, you know and then it also <laughs> and then you know to to turn you against it it's very i know i was given i know i think it's very uh terraforming mars like in the fact that every round you're you're drafting cards and in every round you're paying and you pay for the card. You draft five cards and then you just have to pay for the ones you want to keep. So it's very terraforming Mars in that way. And it really bogs, slows the game down and makes it much longer than it should be for a game. That's just, you know, putting tiles on a board. I don't object to that part of terraforming Mars anyway, but yeah, if you say it's over long, then it's very com- a competitive field. If you want to play with tetrominoes, if you want to play with cute tetrominoes, if you want to play with cute animal tiles, I mean, there's no shortage of options. It's true. So I had this, I had the red boat. Apparently I got nothing but red cats. I just had fun playing it. Uh, it had some interesting sort of take that mechanisms, which luckily came out at the beginning of the game. Like I, I drew this card that just said, two people have to discard, you know, objective cards. Mm. And it could be, and it could be like near the end of the game where they base their whole boat around these objective cards. And I just say, so luckily it was the first turn. I just played it right away, not realizing how powerful it was. And thankfully I didn't. So it was gone and it did minimal damage. But other than that, it was not painful. Still had fun playing it. Not sure I'd ever request it would gladly pay it, play it if it was put on the table. Ah, now, silly, pointless, take that cards that operate to the detriment of the game. Now we're talking Terraforming Mars. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Isle of Cats. I played another game of Four Science. I commented previously that I was looking forward to trying Four Science at a large player count because chaotic, real-time shouting games are very much my cup of tea. 
And sure enough, I was able to play with five players this time. It was myself and someone who played before and three new players. And everyone loved the game. The idea of a a tight 15-minute co-op stacking game was immediately appealing. And then when they saw how it worked and how the cards combined with things, now different roles could lead to different specializations. There was lots of delegation. There was lots of individual impetus. There was lots of private initiative. There was lots of shouting over each other in the best possible way. It was a supreme joy. And now I have to say, I think I'm... Fake news. (laughs) Fake news. Premise one, the game exists. Premise two, you will never have a copy. (laughs) Conclusion, I giggle. That's what syllogisms look like, Walker, by the way. I just schooled you. I need to step up my playing Zephyr Science. I played it now about half a dozen times. I am now ready, I think, to move to events. As I said, very much like Spirit Island, although in different ways, there are innumerable ways to increase the difficulty. And now I'm in a position where I can win the normal baby mode without events somewhat reliably. And, and when I say I can win, I mean when relying on other people to lay out the tiles. Because as I've commented before, the final victory condition, there's kind of like three interlocking spatial puzzles. Two of them, I can do reasonably well. The third one, no. <laughs> it's exclusively the province of somebody else when I'm playing. I can look over and try to contribute, but usually I, I, I'm, it's not worth the bother. This time, actually, I was the coffee guy. The coffee guy just hands out extra cards to people. They allow you to violate someone's hand limit, but only when someone specifically asks for coffee, and then you hand them another card. So that's what I was doing most of the time. It's a great intro teaching the game role, because you're not going to be, you're just helping people out. So you don't end up dominating the game if you're inclined to do that, which I'm not anyway. And it made me feel helpful and, you know, people seem to appreciate my presence, which I I always try to find a way to do that. So anyway, I am ready to now move on to the real grown-up version, which is the version with events, which is another aspect of chaos and difficulty. And even then, after mastering that, as I say, there's any number of additional ways to increase the difficulty. For Science is designed by R.R. Royce and published by Gray Fox Games. A marvelous, marvelous experience. Yes, it's big. Yes, it's heavy. And yes, it's only 15 minutes. But it is worth carting around, and I've started doing that to game nights here. And so I definitely recommend giving it a shot if you can. Disclosure, Arik Royce is a friend of mine. Anyway, that is for science. We got Furnace back to the table. This is designed by Ivan Lashin and put out by Hobby World. This is a very quick four-round cube pusher where it has this a very nice little bidding system. Everyone has four tokens, numbered one through four. You're putting them on these eight cards in a four-player game. You cannot have two of your tokens on a single card, and you can't have two numbers that are the same on a card. And then once everyone has their tokens out, you just sort of go across the cards, and you go down, and it's all the cards have uh, something you're going to get along the top, and it's whatever number you have there times the benefit. And if you have the highest number there, then you just get the card. Once you've gone through the eight cards, then you run your engine. And this time we played in the the experienced big person pant version where when you take the card from the pool, you put it down on your line and then you can't move it after that. Oh my goodness. Once you've placed it in, that's where it's it's to stay. And then when you run your engine, you must run it from left to right. Oh, when I when I, I think, read that version of the rule book, I'm like, oh, I'll never try this version. Oh, wow. I thought it was I thought it was much better. Oh, really? Locked it down much, you know, a lot more decision space, exactly what cards you wanted. It wasn't just I want the best card. It's like, oh, I need this card because I need to slot it in here. 
and I will make the rest of my engine run a lot smoother. There's oh, cool. a lot more decisions to make. I really enjoy it. There's like upgrading your cards. There's all different ways to, you know, you can go heavy into coal or heavy into metal and you can do a mixture of both or there's different ways to, you know, fiddle around with it. Four rounds, it goes very quickly. And uh, if you didn't do so well, you try again. I really enjoy Furnace. I very much appreciate the bidding system. It's not revolutionary, but the fact that you can do something with losing bids, I think, is great. Any bidding system where you're encouraged to make losing bids strategically for a specific purpose, I find interesting. And despite its nearly comically stereotypical Euro setup, it doesn't break any new ground, but does it very, very quickly and cleanly and in a very satisfying way. I quite like Furnace. Glad you're enjoying it. So I played Arkham Horror the card game again, Walker. Oh, that's unfortunate, Mark. Are you okay? Is someone blackmailing you? Um, <laughs> I'm thinking of way, of reasons why you would even sit at a table that would have this on it. Hate is a strong word, Walker. Okay. So is agony. <laughs> These are all strong words. I don't know what's wrong with me, or I don't know what's wrong with the rest of the world, because Arkham Horror, the card game, is adored by many, many, many people, some of whom... I- whose tastes overlap with mine to a considerable extent. But I've now played Arkham Horror the card game three times, and I do not understand the appeal. I tried with the new revised core set, fine, but it's still the same game. And so much of Arkham Horror the card game appears to be the system telling you you don't get to play. And that is, that, that's a personal bugbear of mine. I talk about stunning effects. I talk about fire effects, how they're frequently just reasons for people not to take turns. But the game started out okay. I was playing this character who got to put out an asset that gave me an extra action every turn. Okay, great. So now I'm up to four actions a turn. And the first thing that hits me upside the head is get rid of an asset. Okay, fine. So that thing that I smell the time getting out, it's, it's gone now. Okay, okay, sure, fine. Then I got a status condition that said... Pass a test that you'll never be in a position to pass. Or, for the rest of the game, every time you do certain actions, it costs you two actions. So I went from four actions down to two. I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's fine. It's okay. I'm, I'm here. I'm trying I'm trying to give the game a shot. And then I got pinned by another thing that said I wasn't allowed to move because I needed to pass a test I could never pass. So what you end up doing in Arkham Horror, the card game is you end up experiencing about a third of your deck, which is deeply problematic, I think, from a design perspective, because your deck has bad cards in it. Certain weaknesses, certain things that come up to haunt you that, say, cost you actions to get rid of, or just status conditions that mean you lose actions every turn. And so, are those cards in the top third of your deck? Are they in the bottom third of your deck? Are you going to be hit with three negative status conditions this game? Or zero? Only fate can tell. And so much of the game, even when you're not struggling with those elements, are just these repeated tests. You stand at a position like, okay, we need six clue tokens to get past this barrier. All right, I'll stand in this place with clues. I'll just make test after test after test by pulling tokens out of this bag. It's like, oh, I do not understand the appeal of Arkham Horror, the card game. Maybe it's just over my head. Maybe I just don't get it. But the, the notion of spending any additional time with the deck construction also strikes me as putting good time after bad, because again, you only see such a small percentage of your deck in any given game of Arkham Horror, so I don't understand the appeal of trying to finely tune your deck to get the things you need, or design it to spec, when it is ultimately the case that you're just going to be sailing into the vicissitudes of an unknown scenario, of an unknown draw order, of unknown bad cards that might strip you of all your progress. Ugh. 
That's it. I'm done. No more. I've tried. I've, I've tried. I've tried Walker. I tried. You're not. You're not playing it right, Mark. Clearly, I don't get it. I'm not playing it right, uh, and this, that, and the other. So that was my experience with Arkham Horror, the card game. Lastly, for me, Mark, I got to play Messina 1347. This is designed by Raul Fernandez and Arpelico and Vladimir Suchi. We know Vladimir Suchi does many games like Underwater Cities and Praga Kaput Rigny. And this is going to be his newest release, which is out in Europe right now, not out here. This is why I played it on Tabletop Simulator. And what a mod that is. Sets it up. Does end of round stuff for you. Fantastic little mod. Fantastic little game. So what this is, is shipping boats come to your village, Mark, and rats come off. And the rats have many fleas, and the fleas bite your people, and now your people have the plague. Question, Walker. Who is shipping me these rats, and can I give them a phony address? No. Oh. Rats for everyone. Okay. And so as as the leader of this village, you take these people into your estate and you and you if they have the plague, you keep them separated and if they don't have the plague, then you put them to work because as <laughs> as, as, as the leader, that's what you do to the peasants. That's peasants what leadership is. <laughs> exactly. If you're not sick, you work. <laughs> so, you're working these peasants, you have this and you, the tokens that you move around the peasants are also called overlords. So that's good, right? You're moving these overload to- <laughs> overlord tokens around, which get you bonuses. You're, you're de-plaguing the city. If you don't de-plague the city, then you get rat tokens. And then you can repopulate the city if you wish. Or you can go to the docks and burn down some more stuff. And I think it is a very good game. I'm looking forward to playing it again. It's typical of all the other designs where there's all sorts of different things you do bonuses on bonuses tracks on tracks tons of stuff to do so correct me if i'm wrong it is the next vladimir suki game it is i don't mean to minimize the contributions of the other designers i mean in terms of feel it is the next vladimir suki game and i've been saying the same thing about vladimir suki for years his games i've enjoyed all his games i've really enjoyed them once or twice and then, you know, three, four, five, six plays. I'm like, yeah, I've been here before. I've seen this before. I think this will fall into the same category. I'm still I'm still picking it up because I'd like to see this in real life and play it with, with real people because games change. And that was my play of Messina 1347. Finally for me, I got to try a game called Dark Ages Heritage of Charlemagne. Charlemagne is also known as Charlemagne, also known as Carolus Magnus, also known as Chucky Mags, also known as Charlie Big Big. And this was designed by Adam Kopinski and Andre Novak, put up by Board and Dice. I saw the Kickstarter for this last year, and Adam Kopinski is a potentially interesting designer. See, Adam Kopinski is one of those good news, bad news situations. Good news for us, he designed Lords of Hellas. Bad news for us, he designed Nemesis. Ooh tough. And the the graphic design of Dark Ages really didn't appeal to me, and having played in person, it still really doesn't appeal to me. I played on a, a retail copy, but nonetheless had all the Kickstarter stretch goals. It has 14 optional modules, Walker. Ooh, Fourteen. take your pick. Yes. There are two versions of Dark Ages. There's Heritage of Charlemagne, which is the Western European version, version, and then there's the Holy Roman Empire, which is the, whether you want to call it Eastern European or the Near East, up to you. But they can combine if you want to play a huge game. I wouldn't recommend that. Anyway, 
Dark Ages Heritage of Charlemagne is kind of sort of a 3X-ish kind of game with no exploration. You've got text that you can research. You can exploit the local territory and build up your economic production. You can also send your warriors out to go fight. And indeed, you can upgrade your warriors in a system that is not entirely distant from one of your standard 4X games. You know, you get a new technology that says, oh, well, your infantry now hit better and or take more hits to kill and or have better movement capability or what have you. And so it, it very is reminiscent of a lot of other Civ-type or 4X-type games in that sense. Now, I've only played it once, and it was a solo game. So keep that in mind. But I found it very, very promising. I enjoyed a lot of the elements there. I thought that the economic system was reasonably clean, and it didn't encourage a kind of inward-looking focus on your own economic tracks. It was nonetheless very visible on the board, and you could see what everyone was doing, and you'd go after their economic production. It had an interesting notion of tempo, because you send out workers in a system not entirely unlike Kalamala. If you recall, in Kalamala, you, you send your workers out into a stack, and when the stack gets high enough, the worker at the bottom goes off and does something else. In Kalamala, it triggered scoring. Here, in Dark Ages, it triggers a reaction, which is kind of a bonus action you can do. So you're incentivized with your early actions to go out onto action spaces that you think are going to be highly sought after, and that will give you more action efficiency because you get all these free reactions. But then, like a lot of other modern euros, it has the sort of recall your workers element, which is when you actually trigger production. So there's some tempo considerations there. Do I want to keep going and try to see if I can do more with the resources I have, or recall my workers and get more production. There's a lot going on. It's very rules-heavy. I don't know how terribly well the systems cohere. That's the kind of thing that I'd want to see other players playing to really get a sense of knowing, because again, I was wrestling with the solo system as I was figuring out the rules for the first time, but as I say, I found it very promising. And the combat dynamics are potentially interesting. It's just a single round of combat, but First, you fight with your archers because they lose their volleys. Then your cavalry charges in, and then everyone engages in a big scrum of melee after that. And I don't think it reinvents the wheel, but I think it gets a lot of things right. It actually reminds me a lot of ways in terms of its overall scope of another very recent release, namely Clash of Cultures Monumental Edition, which I haven't, I haven't played the new Clash of Cultures, but I played the original Clash of Cultures. And it seems to be situated in roughly the same area, but... It has the benefit of a slightly more responsive dynamic in terms of action selection. And another thing that I really, really like about Dark Ages is that it is slightly more historically and geographically grounded. It's about actual people, actual places, and actual things that are all of the same time period, rather than Napoleon leading a tank battalion to go conquer the pyramids or what have you. So early impressions only, but I found Dark Ages Heritage of Charlemagne promising. I definitely think that it is worth a second look, and I will be trying to get it to the table again as soon as possible the moment I can find people who are interested in a two- to three-hour, relatively rules-dense, kind of three-exious sort of thing. And so that's Dark Ages Heritage of Charlemagne, designed by Adam Kopinski and Andre Novak, by Board and Dice, put out this year. And those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news, and why it doesn't matter. Mark, there used to be a game called Risk Legacy. And apparently they realized finally that that did fairly well and people liked it. So they're going to put out a new one. This one's going to be called Risk Shadow Forces. It's going to be like Legacy Light. Yeah, it says it has four sealed envelopes and one sealed box. That does not seem like a lot of Legacy stuff to me. Well, like I said, it'll be light. (laughs) Legacy-ish. (laughs) Legacy adjacent. Yeah, Rob Davio confirmed on Twitter that he does not have any participation or involvement with this new project. So we'll see. Now, the same guy designed it and did 
all of the graphic and art. His initials are N.A. I'm not sure what that stands for. Not applicable. Well, you said it was design work, right? The designer Thank of thanks. this Hasbro product is not applicable. Not applicable. Risk Shadow Forces. New release from Reiner Knizia, Art Robbery from Helvetic. I really like the art style. I've read the rules. It's got a very simple, accessible Reiner Knizia gameplay. It reminds me a little bit of High Society in that you're engaging in card play to win these assets, but at the end of the day, there's an insta-loss condition. Whoever has the fewest alibi points at the end of playing Art Robbery is arrested and so automatically loses. And I found that in High Society, that added a nice little bit of teeth to an otherwise relatively procedural auction system. High Society, I don't think, is one of his best works, but Art Robbery looks promising. I'm very interested in giving it a shot. Mark, we like Ice Cool. I liked it kind of. Wasn't that kind of flicking system wasn't my thing, but there's going to be a new one coming out called Iron Forest. It's by the same people who did Ice Cool. And it's like this two-layered board. It's on these giant stilts with pits that your pieces will fall down. You're playing giant robots. I saw some dice rolling going on there. So we'll see how that pans out. I'm interested to in seeing how that plays. It was announced a long time ago. We first talked about Iron Forest over a year ago. They now say that there's going to be crowdfunding sometime early next year, so let's hope. On the topic of crowdfunding, hopefully sometime early next year, I am positively vibrating with anticipation for the new Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition, Walker. I cannot wait. Apparently, there's going to be an early version finalized sometime next month on the Tabletop Simulator mod. There's already a preliminary Tabletop Simulator mod with a lot of new stuff, and we are talking a lot of new stuff. They've revamped the train system. Tons new cards, tons new professions, tons new archetypes, tons new enemies, tons new skills all over the place. And the, I've been reading the, the the developer and designer diaries online. I am so, so keen on all the new Assault and Doomrock stuff. I, and this, I think, is very timely because at the same time, we have Too Many Bones and someone game found. I like Too Many Bones. I think I'm done with Too Many Bones, though. I don't think I want to spend another $220 <laughs> on new Too Many Bones content. Yeah, that's how much the new stuff costs. You can get just the new base game, but if you want to stay all in... You have to pay another $220, and then if you have the custom storage solution that you overpaid for a while ago, you can give them $25 more so the new stuff can fit in the all-in-one storage solution before. So, I mean, look, I'm not saying it's not worth the money. You, you definitely see, at least component-wise, where the money went. If you really like neoprene and plastic cards, Too Many Bones is for you. But I think, and this is very uncharacteristic for me, especially in light of games like Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition, especially in light of the fact that I already have a lot of Too Many Bones... I am definitely able to do something I'm not usually able to do and say to my completionist impulses, sit down, shut up, and save your money. And that's where I'm sitting with respect to that. But I cannot wait for Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition. We might be getting an early uh, early prototype copy to preview, which is something we do not do. Normally, previews are not something we do, but in the case of Assault on Doomrock, I am willing to make a mild exception. Beautiful Disaster Games are an interesting company doing interesting things. Cannot wait. And lastly, for me, is we streamed Isle of Cats and Furnace on Twitch just this last Saturday. And coming up this Saturday, we're either going to be playing The Siege of Rundar by Rhino Knizia, or we're going to return to Denia, which was a very colorful and art-heavy game about robots and, and uh, activating areas. I'm very interested to bring that back to the table. Check us out next Saturday. 10 a.m. Eastern on Twitch. 
Finally for me, this may be too late for some of you, but happy Arkhipov Day on October 27th. We celebrate Vasily Arkhipov, the man who saved the world, literally. This is the 59th anniversary of the day that Vasily Arkhipov saved the world on October 27th. I will note that now we have a theme song, Two Atomic Heroes by Lemon Knife. And we still have our Arkhipov Day Patreon sale. Pledge for 10 months, get two months free. But as ever, happy Arkhipov Day. Arkhipov Day, for me anyway, is a day to consider what you do with power and of speaking truth to power. So every year we celebrate this very special day. I hope you have a happy Arkhipov Day. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our topic this week, which is resolving rules disputes. Let's err on the side of fun. (laughs) Well, fun for me is playing the game right, Janice. So maybe pull your head out of your ass and stick it back in the rule book and find the answer. Sir, sir, I'm going to have to ask you to lower your voice, sir. Please stop moving your hands, sir. Well, that, that I think is, is the prime thing, right? I think it is better to be clear and quick than to be right. It is important to keep games moving. I think that not not because, you know, if people start paying attention to what they're doing, they'll bolt or something. But just it's better to keep the, the pace going. And people don't want to sit around and flip through documents. People want to play games. People want to be more interactive than that. And, and rules disputes fundamentally are some of the worst player interaction you're ever going to have. And so I'm generally in favor of, of resolving them as quick as possible and letting the fullness of truth come out later upon retrospect. Yeah, I was thinking about that, but are you actually playing the game then? I'm just wondering, is it important to p- play it as the designer intended? Is is this their vision, their game? And if you're not playing it by the rules, then are you actually playing that game? I could be her- all Heracliteen about this and say you never play the same game twice. If you're going to play with slight rules variations, of course, that's true. But so, so let's address that first. One of the reasons why we're talking about this, this topic was suggested by a listener who's a law professor. And the way they framed it was explicitly in terms of different doctrines of constitutional interpretation. I have a bit of a background in judicial, judicial politics. I pay a lot of attention to what Supreme Courts do. I find this very interesting. And what you're talking about is a, a certain doctrine that is somewhat related to originalism, which is you look to the framer's intent. What is it that the designer intended the game to be? And so that is kind of one of the paradigms that you're positing as being important, right? Exactly. So why do you think that is? Because they've gone to the trouble of making this game. And and you set out at the beginning of this adventure, you said, let's play X. Mm-hmm. And if you don't follow the rules of X, then you're not actually playing X. I am sympathetic to that, but let me offer a counterpoint. I don't think that Eric Lang or Martin Wallace or Vitalis or Reiner Kinsey or whomever is nearly as important as the other people who are at the table with you, either literally or metaphorically in the case of, of digital board gaming. And so for one thing, I think then your obligation to uphold whatever vision the designer had is very much secondary to your social obligations to the people immediately around you. I know, I know you weren't contradicting that, no, but nonetheless, I want to no, assert I, it. Well, I'm trying to say it's not so much as paying homage to them as opposed to they had a vision of a particular aspect of the game. Like, mm-hmm. say, in Raw, they you've, you've, you've accidentally left out the bidding system and people can just take random tokens out of the bag. <laughs> that is, well, Walker, what we call in uh, discussion and argumentation a straw man argument. I was not <laughs> suggesting that we... But, but, but I'm just saying that is that is an extreme example. But I just mean say, if you skipped if you skipped a fundamental part of of why 
the designer has made this game a certain way, then maybe sure. you're not actually playing that game. I respect that. But I, I think that what we were imagining here when we're talking about rules disputes is a rule dispute about, say, you know, the tiebreaker condition or how exactly does this particular special power work as opposed to somebody setting up raw and one person saying there are auctions in this game and the other player saying, no, there aren't. I just take whatever tiles I want. I don't think that's a rules dispute in the same way that we're talking. I could be wrong. You're taking me awfully literally. Well, but okay. Well, okay. But one thing I do want to point out though, with respect to this intent of, of the designer going on, is I don't even think it's as clear as people make it out to be. And again, this has overtones in terms of constitutional interpretation, right? People always talk about framer's intent. Why is it the framer and not the ratifier? In the context of board games, it we talk about the designer, but what about the editor? What about the publisher? What about the developer? And this sometimes this doesn't apply, but sometimes it does. Take, for example... Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel is a fascinating example of what happens when a designer, a brilliant designer, Ryan Knizia, submits a design, and then the developers and the publisher make two substantial changes, one of which was awesome and one of which was terrible. And so if you could imagine someone having a discussion about what is the way to play Tower of Babel, Reiner Knizia would say one way. Other groups of people would say other ways, and then you would have other groups of players, for example, who suggest a very common house rule, like ourselves, who would suggest yet a third way involving one of the designer uh, developer's changes to the designer's vision and not the other one. And my point here isn't just about, you know, constitutional interpretation, why framers intend to stupid. Let me just insert something very quickly. Sure. There. Those are things that you would you decide before you started playing. Sure. You're which right. way you're going to play. Okay. It, it's true, but in the context of rules ambiguity, though, in the, in the case where it's not exactly clear how to proceed, I think the same point stands. The principle, I think, is the same. Agreed. For me, I'm, I'm more of what you would call a textualist, only in the context of board games. Allow me to stress that once again, only in the context of board games. I don't think you can do constitutional interpretation that way. A, a textualist says you look at the ordinary meaning of the text. And I would say, rather than trying to be faithful to some vision of a designer or a creator, some sort of aesthetic or artistic vision, I think instead you should try to be faithful to the contract or some kind of set of expectations that set up the game, which is to say the, the rules documents and, of course, the cards and whatever else the have rules text on it. And the, the texts of the game stipulate the bounds of the rules, not necessarily any other sort of vision. And now, obviously, this is... You can't use it by itself, and I'll talk about exceptions later, but but to me, that is, I think, the ideal that you point to in terms of resolving disputes. Now, another way to look at it is, since we are content creators and we are presenting these games to the public, do you feel that we're under extra pressure to get the rules correct since we're sort of presenting these games to people that have not played them before or, you know, you know what I mean? Yes, uh, I, I certainly feel that. I've definitely it's definitely been the case that when games have been misplayed sufficiently badly, we either don't talk about the game entirely if we caught the errors ourselves, or in the case of when it became clear that we'd played the game falsely and listeners catch us on it, we make a, a, a every attempt to play it again properly as quickly as possible. So some other things that I've heard, like some sort of uh, uh, they say like as. Uh... As long as the, the 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 mistake that we made applies to everyone, you know, it's fine. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. say, okay, well, we've got this wrong, this rule wrong, but it applied to everyone, so let's just keep playing it this way. And then sometimes people don't understand that 
the rules have been balanced to all of the cards in the game, all right. of the different spaces in the game, all the different player powers. Everything's been balanced a certain way where you can't just say, well, let's just, you know, since you feel as though it's impacting everyone the same, we'll just keep playing it that way. Well, and then, again, the political and legal overtones are, are constant. Sometimes it may be formally equivalent, but not substantively equivalent. Say, for example, you misplayed a rule and everyone got shorted one money in terms of income. Well, if you're the one sitting on 20 dollars of income being shorted one ain't no thing but if you're the player who gets four dollars of income and you got shorted of one that's a huge deal and so it doesn't seem to make sense to say oh well you know we've been playing it wrong everyone was equally affected but that raises another question at what time should you change rules midstream when you found out that you've been messing things up some people are of the impression that you should never do this what are your thoughts I'm saying we have we have the third turn rule that yes. we've used many times where we realize like it's like, oh, look at this little window over here. It says we were supposed to do this. And it's like, well, that's obviously only to be done in the third turn of the game. So now going forward, we will now be implementing this rule. Yes, we change midstream all the time. If we found out that we've been doing something wrong, we try to play by the correct rules going forward. And it's just, I find it fascinating that many groups have the exact opposite reaction. If you played a couple rounds with the wrong rules, you play the rest of the game with the wrong rules. You try to be consistent rather than try to be accurate. We try to be accurate rather than try to be consistent. I don't know that there's a better or worse way to do it. It's just a question of group preference. And that, I think it also applies to some of the rules. Like like I said, in Tinner's Trail earlier, there is these aqueducts or audits that you can build. And when I explained the rules, I had said that, you know, it clears up uh, two cubes of water. And it was interpreted by the other players as two cubes of water from each territory because you play it across two different territories when the actual rule is only one per and so when I finally got to place my first one, I took one from each. And they said, oh, you're ah. supposed to take two from each. And I was like, oh, no. And then we just played this. Since we had done it several times already, we just decided to keep doing it the same way. I see. And that sort of leads into another point I have later on is is when you when you do changes like that or when you talk, when you do make a mistake, it really de- sometimes it really depends on how frequently that rule is going to come up again. Right. A lot of times it's, it's the, a lot of the mistakes are in cards. A yes. lot of rules disputes comes up over cards. No doubt. And, and 90% of those problems are all timing issues in cards. But anyway, that being said. I wouldn't say 90%, but yeah, a lot of them. A lot of them. So a lot of times it's just a single card and you just sort of like fudge the rule and say either, A, just draw another card, don't worry about it, (laughs) ditch that one, we'll worry about it later or whatever. But if it's a fundamental rule, then you have to address it right away. Yeah, and when it's a one-off card, if it's not going to stay in play forever or if its effects are minimal, usually at that point the stakes are so low. I mean, let's be clear, the stakes for any rules mistake are usually super, super low. And that's one of the tragedies. When people get heated about rules disputes, and I'll I'll completely confess that I get bad at this too. Sometimes I get a little too invested in a particular argument that will surprise nobody given what you already know about my personality. But the stakes are super low here. It's important to chill out and just try to find a way forward. That's the goal here. The goal isn't to be right or accurate or truthful. The goal is to find a means to go forward. And that is often at the expense of being right sometimes. And in cases of one shots, especially so. Well, I have, the, I have this later on, but, but there are, there's definitely two, not two, there's many different groups or 
but there's two different ways. There's like when you would play with your friends. Like I, I can't remember ever having a rules dispute problem in the like the last ten years of play because it's always we've we've had our our group of players. They they're very friendly. They're very approachable, and they're very you know they you know I mean there's never been any problems. Accommodating, yeah. Accommodating. You can go to a new group. You can go out to gaming nights where there's people that you don't even know, or you're at a convention. You're playing with people you don't even know, and sometimes there can be this sense of of being the alpha gamer, or being accepted, or being or not wanting to back down. You know, losing face. You know, there's all of Absolutely. these things that play into these rules disputes. Well, that actually leads to another school of constitutional interpretation, doctrinalism. Doctrinalism is the view that you should interpret things in the overall context of other things that have happened before. It's not quite like precedent. It's slightly different. It's just about, you know, we generally act in a certain kind of way. And this definitely applies to rules interpretations in our own group. As you said, we, for example, have a very strong tradition of the the, the, the turn three rule. And so when it comes to things like misplays, takebacks, whether you get to look through the discard pile, sometimes things that are not covered by rulebooks entirely, at the end of the day, you generally just point to the traditions of your game group and what you generally allow. And so there's usually not a right answer to those rules disputes. It's just a question of what tradition dictates. And usually if you're the new person there, you you would best defer to the tradition of, of the group, regardless of how alien it is to your experience. Another thing I have later on is... Um... All the people that we play with know us and they know that when we interpret a rule that we are not, we don't care about winning. You know, we're not interpreting a rule to our benefit. We're in a lot of cases from all of the stuff that I've read, people were, you know, because when I was doing my research, people were interpreting rules to benefit themselves or they just, you know, use the same rules over and over again during the game. But when it went against them, that's when they pulled out the rule book and, you know, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so a lot of that kind of stuff, you know, because when people, you know, trust you, a lot of it has to do with trust, too. It's like, yes. you, know, you know, they know that you don't care about winning or, you know, the fact that you just want the rules to be played correctly. And then so when you say, no, it's done this way, then they will just take it at your face value and not fight you over it. Rules disputes, I think, even at the best of times, are potentially fraught precisely because there are no impartial judges. Like, yeah, we're not competitive. We don't really care. Co-op games, that's one of the reasons why rules disputes in co-op games are so much simpler. It's like, eh, how would we like to proceed? But in a competitive game, even with non-competitive-minded people, there are only partial judges involved. And th this is a partial group of people resolving a disagreement amongst friends. So it's just socially very, very fraught. Frequently also, rather on top of that, one person, namely the person who's read the rulebook, or if there's only one, is better informed than the rest. And so these other people aren't necessarily willing to give up their positions merely from a state of partial ignorance because they're, they're invested too. They have a stake. Just because they haven't read the entire rules document doesn't mean they don't get to have an opinion. So I, I agree with you entirely. It, but trust is a fragile thing. And sometimes the best way I find at least to build it up is to, no matter what, acknowledge the validity of someone else's position as best as possible. It's like, look, I don't read it that way, but I see why you read it that way, at least. I find that's a good way to diffuse the tension as best as possible. It's true. I get in a lot of trouble because people think I'm trying to start a rule dispute. 
when I'm just actually <laughs> yep. I'm just interested in in trying to start a conversation on how a wor- uh, rule was worded or how it could be interpreted in a different way. Not that I'm saying we're we are interpreting it wrong. I'm just saying, hey, isn't that weird that they did it that way and not this way? Or you know, what do you, you know? I'm just trying to start a conversation. You want to play with words? Yes, is what you want to do. You want to play with words. And it took me a long time, and I still reflexively uh, react to it sometimes in a very bad way. But you just want to play with words, and I immediately hear, this is how the card should work. I'm like, no, that's absurd. And you're like, <laughs> maybe it is, but there's a version of the, I don't want to play it this way. But there's a version of parsing the words where you could maybe get there. Part of the other problem is, is that you and I parse words in a, very differently. Uh, so sometimes we've had disagreements, or even just discussions, where... I really can't see where you're getting the gloss that you're getting, and you can't can't see why I'm getting the gloss that I'm getting. Fortunately, if either one of us were were really really cared about winning, I could easily see us having some knockdown dragon arguments. <laughs> it's true because <laughs> of so how true. differently we view these things, and that's one of the reasons why I'm a textualist when it comes to rules interpretation. There is a text that you could appeal to because I, I hear a lot of people, and I think Huey is this way sometimes. It's like, well. Let's just try to make the interpretation that kind of makes the most sense to us. And I, I, I very much try to put the kibosh on that. The sort of intuitionism. Because if you get two gamers together, you're going to have like five intuitions competing. It often involves importing armchair designer impulses, how they would design the game, some sort of half-baked notion of fairness, some weird notion of balance after only played a couple turns of the game. And that's why I find just people ruling on intuition. It's like, yeah, sure, the rulebook may say that, but this feels better to me. It's like, that's dangerous. Let's not do that. Exactly. Agreed. When you are explaining the rules, don't take offense when someone questions you. You sort of already covered what? that. <laughs> and uh, are you, you accusing me of something that i do all the time that, walker how dare that, you that, that cards are usually the big problem when it comes to rules disputes because usually you know games have multiple decks and sometimes you know they counter other rules that's why i'd say almost 98 percent of books <laughs> say when a card you know counter counter the rule book the rules yeah. the, you know the, the, the card always you know takes precedence. Can I bring in another doctrine of constitutional interpretation? As a you sure can. So structuralism is the view that what you need to do is look at a particular bit of text in the context of the structures of other bits of text. And we do this all the time in order to try to figure out how a thing works. Uh, the classic example for me is sometimes we're puzzling over whether whether targets are allied to themselves, whether a figure is an ally or friendly to itself. And then the first thing we look for is any effect, any power, any card, any event that says other allied or other friendly target. And then we can say, ah, well, by implication, targets are friendly themselves. Otherwise, they wouldn't have specified other. That would be redundant. Ergo, we can try... Anyway, I just found it interesting that that these little tricks of interpretation recur both in board games and in constitutional analysis. Yeah, and almost like the identical thing is is a figure adjacent to itself in its own space. You know, that all leads into the same sort of thing. Right, right. I mean, ultimately, when it comes to the rules explainer, though, just to go back to that point, I try in all cases of rules disputes, if, if we can't find something clear to articulate it, I find it's best to defer to the rules explainer. If the rules explainer has a hunch or a belief, or maybe they half remember reading something, even if there isn't solid evidence there, if there isn't solid evidence to contradict them, best to defer to the way they do things and move on. Maybe I feel that way because I'm usually the one explaining the game. I don't know, but there I am. 
And sometimes experience helps too. If you've played a lot of games, you can sort of uh, parse out what was the cost of that card or that ability that the person had to pay in regards to the benefit that they're going to get or the benefit they feel they should get. And you can sort of parse out, you know, the meaning or, you know, whether the rule is right or wrong that way. I am absolutely guilty of trying to lean on experience or look to the most experienced player there. I'm leery of that, though, because absent a particular structuralist account, again, this card should cost five because this other card, which seems strictly better, costs seven or what have you, or figuring out a particular tech. At the end of the day, sometimes that's invoking experience is just another way to say, well, my intuition is better than your intuition. My hunch is better than your hunch, which number one is often false because intuitions generally are. And number two is kind of gatekeeper in its implications. So I'm sympathetic. I think it's a, it's a good tactic for picking a way to go forward, but I'm nervous about taking it too far. I think we should do Thunderdome. Two interpretations enter, one interpretation leaves. <laughs> All right, I get to be Tina Turner though. You want to play by the correct rules, but starting an argument when you've already lapped everybody else. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, I seem is awfully rough. Like, you know, you're, you're, you've played the game before. You know, you're, you're doing better than everyone else. You've practically lapped them. Someone does something wrong because they feel they're doing it right. They sort of built up to this point and, you know, they're, eggs are all in one basket but they've misinterpreted a rule and they're still not going to come anywhere close to you you sort of just let it go and maybe you smith i i just let it go and then maybe at the end of the game it's like just so next time we play you know <laughs> right. this this is you know i i forgot this one little part i should have told you and then that kind of thing i agree with you in terms of authority uh, my inclination is to defer to the rules explainer, but also my strong inclination is to defer in favor of fun. People often, I think, prioritize some notion of fairness over fun. I'm not much into fairness. I don't really care that much about it as an abstract concept. But yeah, if somebody has been working towards something, and especially if you know they're not going to win, maybe sometimes even if they do win, they clearly devoted all their effort into doing something and they say bam i get to do this cool thing they're like no actually you don't get to do anything cool or fun because you misunderstood the rules or because we disagree about how the rules work nah that should be avoided at all costs usually what i tend to do if i'm in the middle of the game and the rules explainer i either think there's something wrong or i know there's something wrong i just you know wait till it's not my turn and i just ask for the rule book and i find the the correct rule and I just sort of lean over and point to it. I don't like call big attention to the table and it's like, no, I was right. You were wrong. I just get them to read it. And then I just sort of leave it to them. Like say if they just like read it and then put the book down, you know, ah, that's, that's fine. Or, you know, they read it and they understand. And then they sort of say, oh yes. Okay. You know, this was how we should have done it or however they want to do it. I'll just leave it up to them. To paraphrase our great friend, Dr. Stallone, a man of considerable wisdom and style. He often say, I'm paraphrasing here, advice in public is an accusation. And you're right. Handling it privately is generally the way to do it. Can I ask you your impression of one of the most famous rules arbitration, rules arbitration dispute mechanisms? For sure. A number of people point this out as sort of the hallmark of accommodation, a sort of a genius element of resolving rules disputes. And I, for one, have never had any patience for it. This is the Games Workshop. If you disagree about a rule, both sides roll a d6, higher rules, higher rollers interpretation takes the day. I've never done this once in my life, even when playing Games Workshop rules. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. 
<laughs> and, and, to, and, to, and to, since we're on the games workshop, like I've never had rules disputes in board games, like like I have in miniature games. Like oh, there yeah. is so much more ambiguity and and painfulness no in miniature games than there is in any board game I've ever played. Because something I'd just like to point out with respect to the Games Workshop Infamous D6 is one of the things that people say about it is very much the same thing that some people say about originalism or textualism in the context of constitutional analysis, which is, well, at least it's clear and it resolves the issue and will give you a definitive answer. Not so. I remember Woogie's story about playing, I think it was 40k with somebody, who brought a customized tank with a prow on the front and said, oh, well, because of the prow, I get a bonus to ramming actions. And Woogie said, well, that's not anywhere in the rules. And this douchebag said, oh, well, we have a rules dispute. Let's die off for it. And, like, there's no end to this. It's like, oh, well, my carrier is equipped with tactical nukes that immediately obliterates your army before the start of the fight. Well, where does it say you can do that? All right, let's die off for it. Like, it, it just seems to encourage nonsense. Similarly, I, I mean, I try to be textualist with rules disputes. That That's not a guarantee you're going to find text that resolves it. I mean, there was a recent example, actually, where textualism led me astray. And that was the rulebook for Ankh. We were playing Ankh, and the camel event came up. And the person who triggered it said, do I have to break up some provinces in two? I looked at the rulebook, and the rulebook says, the person triggering the event may deploy up to six camels. I'm like, oh, it says may. It's not phrased in the imperative. You don't have to do it. Well, later on, there was a fact that said, actually, they're all mandatory. They're all obligatory. So sometimes you have to be careful about these things. And those little textual tricks that I sometimes point to in order to try to resolve rules disputes, they're no guarantee of being accurate either. True. In the research I did, a lot of the disputes were where people would go to the rule book and says and would say that kind of thing. Well, it doesn't say I can't do this. So oh, give me a break. I'm sick. Right. To, uh, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. This whole exclusive versus inclusive rule book or or rules presentation canard. It's silly because no rule book has ever said I'm not allowed to choke somebody, nor has any rule book ever said that I'm allowed to breathe while playing the game. Give me a break. So I do have some golden rules about. If you know the rules of a game, the best way to go forward. Like, so if you're just observing a game and you know the rules, the best thing to do is to interrupt as, as frequently as you can <laughs> whenever they do anything wrong. Yeah. And make sure you tell them exactly what they should be doing instead and how foolish they are yep. for getting it wrong in the first place and, and how, how you and your friends play it. And how they're totally. doing it wrong. This is key golden rule stuff that you need to get done. And you have to start every sentence with um, actually. The two magic words that guarantee compliance and demonstrate that you're an authority. Um, actually. All right. On this note, three favorite sayings when it comes to rules. You never told us that. <laughs> I think that's your favorite one too, Mark. It makes me so mad. Let's just start, and we'll pick it up as we go. Oh, Walker, you're giving me chills. Not good ones. And it's just a game. <laughs> so this the second one here, let's just start, and we'll pick it up as we go. That's I think, is the, the worst offender, because cause it leads to the first one, is you never told us that. Well, you said, well, let's just start. And it, and it leads, especially with the end victory point conditions, right? It's like, it's like... I got 10 provinces here. I get, you know, a hundred points. It's like, well, if you told us they got all those points, well, you said, you said that you just wanted to start. You didn't in, want a rules explanation. In defense of the people who say number two, let's just start and we'll pick it up as we go along. There are some people who genuinely mean it and who genuinely just want to go along for the ride and are not going to then hit you with, but you never told us that. It's just not the way I like to learn games. 
but I'm I have met people who genuinely do the second thing without engendering any additional rules disputes. But I do agree with you. The people who say that and then get involved in rules dis- disagreements with you, they are some of the most difficult people to game with in my in my experience. And nothing can pull you out of a game like a rules dispute is what I've written here. Like like you're in the middle of the game, you're invested, you're definitely concentrating, and then there's a problem, and now you're pulled right out of the experience. And the game is ruined. Which is why I think it's better to be clear and quick than right. Now, to get back all the way back to the beginning um, about uh, playing the game correctly for the experience. I'm just, I also have here, like, for first-time players, do they not deserve the right to play the game correctly, exactly the way it should be? Obviously, the you do, you do your best faith effort to play infidelity with the rules as you understand them, however we want to construct that. There's certainly a law of diminishing returns. The more time you spend trying to figure out the rule, the less likely it is that you're going to get any degree of clarity. Like the moment you start getting knee deep in conflicting facts and all this stuff at the playing table, I think that there's a less chance that things are going to be resolved satisfactorily. And it's better to keep things moving, all things being equal. I'm not saying if you know you can find the answer in 20 seconds, someone should say, no, 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 we're just Move on, move on, ignore it. But in the case where you have two options, either being right and taking a very, very long time, or being close enough to correct so that it's still an enjoyable play experience and keeping going, do the latter. I really think the majority of the rules problems that we have is not uh, a dispute between an interpretation of a rule. It's usually that we've accidentally left a small rule out. And we have to go back and insert it in. It's usually not a problem that we have between two people having different interpretations. It's usually we've forgotten a small bit of a rule or, you know, a phase, you know, an end phase bit of getting gold or, you know, not putting a meeple on somewhere when we we're supposed to, as opposed to conflicting interpretations. It's true. And in cases where you don't have that luxury, well, you have my sympathy. Well, that's going to do it for this week for So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice.gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon, Twitch, and sowronggames.com. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Once again, for the Swike presents Masterpiece Theater. This week we are talking about The Legend of Korra, Season 1. Walker, your thoughts? My thoughts are this. See, I don't want to speak for for uh, reincarnation, <laughs> but their feeling is that the Dalai Lama is being reincarnated, and there's this whole story about bringing toys he had as a child or items that he might have had in his previous life. And they're... So at the beginning of Korra... There's these three elders and they come into this this village and you can tell that they've been very well tested. They've gone through many 
applications of parents that thought their child was the avatar because every parent thinks that their child is special. So these these poor elders look very tired and they're going to be disappointed once again. It's yes, bring out your child and so we can fail it because it's obviously not the avatar and the wall explodes from <laughs> earth bending. She sails in on a, a, a sheet of ice while throwing fireballs and exclaims, I'm the avatar deal with it. And it sets the tone for the whole season and sold me in the first three minutes of the show. I was a little nervous because I knew that there's some controversy with respect to Avatar fans as to the status of The Legend of Korra. Uh, I will just note before moving on that one of the voice actors of those elders that has been looking up for new avatars is Stephen Root. Stephen Root, if you don't know, you've seen him in many, many things. You love him whether you know it or not, and he makes everything better. He's not in everything good, but he makes everything better. And he is voices several different roles in The Legend of Korra. Uh, I can't remember the last time I enjoyed a season of television as much as I enjoyed season one of The Legend of Korra. It completely blew me away. It was so many of the things that I wanted Avatar to be. It was more grounded. It was geographically situated. It was mostly about a single city. It reminded me a little bit of Dragon Age 2 in that respect. That it was mostly about a single city dealing with problems to which there was no clear answer. I felt sympathetic with the overall aims of the, the, the big bad villain. And granted, it didn't manifest itself terribly, terribly well in the ending, but I, I very much appreciated the complexity that was presented when it was there. The adults get to be actual characters. One of the most badass characters in one of the most badass action sequences is a middle-aged woman, which generally fiction is not good at doing. I thought that the characters being older overall was done very, very well. The relative of goofiness was toned down, but no, still the less present. I loved so many things about The Legend of Korra. I also really liked how they named one of the main characters, Mako, in tribute to Iroh's voice actor, who sadly died between seasons two and three of Avatar and was actually recast for season three of Avatar. We didn't talk about that last time. Uh, and, you know, Mako was a tremendous, tremendous actor, both in terms of voice acting and generally. And so I thought that was a very nice tribute. Legend of Korra is really badass. It's so good. <laughs> so good. They bring in this whole sports element, which, you know, I'm I'm semi-huge on sports, but still they just did it so well, like incorporating bending with this sport. And I thought it was, you know, entertaining to watch and was well done. Too bad it wasn't well implemented in the board game version. I know I shouldn't say that. I haven't played it, but got no good buzz. Anyway, Legend of Korra season one. If you haven't seen it, please check it out. Thank you very much, listeners, for joining us for Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater. Join us again sometime for presumably The Legend of Korra Season 2, in which Mark gets disappointed. Peace! As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.